I came across in, in preparing for this series a very interesting story about a man named Cecil Pugh. I'm sure you've all heard of him. Anybody heard of Cecil Pugh? I'd be very impressed. That would be, I'd never heard of him in my life. He was a, uh, a British soldier. He served first in World War I. Uh, he was a medic in France during World War I. And um, he was a believer. And uh, he served well in France as a medic. And then World War I ended and he went home. He got married and had three kids there in England. And then some years went by and World War II broke out. And England entered World War II in the 1930s. And uh, he went back into the military, but this time as a chaplain. Cecil Pugh went back as a chaplain, a chaplain officer. And uh, he served for a couple of years and then he got transferred from where he was serving down to West Africa. And uh, as they did, uh, as, as we did as well as America once we entered the war, uh, they converted some of their civilian craft into military. And they made a troop carrier, a transporter, out of a, a civilian a passenger liner. Uh, and it was rated to have a 500 troop capacity. Well, on this particular transport from England down to West Africa, they had 1,200 troops on it, and Cecil was one of them. And as they were going uh, down there, they were discovered by a German submarine that shot and blew up part of the boat, uh, the ship, and it started to sink very rapidly. Well, as it is told by eyewitnesses, all of the officers on board the ship jumped onto the lifeboats and left all of the enlisted men, except for Cecil. He stayed behind as his former training as a medic began to help people on deck, but then the sound of the men trapped below deck began to reach his ears and pierce his heart. And he looked around at all of the other men on deck and he said, guys, you're gonna lower me down there. And they said, no, we are not gonna do that. This boat is going down. The water is already halfway up the hold down there. There's no way, you're, all those guys are lost. You are not going, if you go down, we're not getting you out, you will die. And he said, you are gonna lower me down there, gentlemen, because my love of God is greater than my fear of death. So they strapped him up, lowered him down, and he kind of shimmied his way where he could get and made it down into the hold where the guys were. And he began to pray and share the gospel with as many men down there in the hold as he possibly could before the water got so high that it killed them all. You see, for Cecil Pugh, and he, he did, he died in that boat. And then the king of England gave his wife a medal, the highest medal they had. See, for Cecil Pugh, sharing the gospel, comforting those in loss valued much more than his own life to the point of death. He was willing to walk into death if that meant having an opportunity to share the gospel with just a handful more people. And he died that day. Well, as we're going to see in today's scripture, God cares for every individual no matter where they may find themselves, no matter how dire the situation may be, God will reach out and bring help to anybody and everybody. So open your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 23. 
We're going through a series called Last Words where we're looking at the last words of Jesus. We just examined the last words of Cecil Pugh, but we're looking at the last words of Jesus. He made seven statements from the cross. After he was nailed to the cross, he made seven statements recorded in the Gospels. And we're examining each one in the lead up to Easter. Um, Last week, we took a look at Jesus' first statement from the cross where he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and examined forgiveness. This week, we're going to look at another statement. It's actually a few verses after the one we looked at last week. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Luke writes, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so the story, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story, uh, Jesus was taken and he was tried at several, you know, trials that were, were not legal, but it was the desire of the mob to see Jesus crucified. And so uh, the leaders, Herod, Pilate, gave in to that desire and had Jesus crucified. Well, the way Roman, you know, uh, uh, civil or, or uh, legal punishment worked is they would have a docket of guys that they were going to execute. And whenever they had enough guys, they would pull them together and execute them. Well, they had some guys on the docket to be executed And the next time execution came up, this was going to be a biggie. I mean, Jesus being executed was going to be a big deal. So they just grabbed the next two guys on the execution docket and bring them out with Jesus to this hill to be crucified. And they take them up there, and they have Jesus, and then they have these two criminals, one on either side of Jesus. Now, as far as we can tell, uh, you know, as in contrast, how it's often depicted, all three of their crosses were probably the same size. And uh, they're up there, same height, all three of them, being crucified on a main thoroughfare going into the city so that they could be seen by the most amount of people and be mocked by the most amount of people. And uh, Jesus is there, and those other two criminals are there on either side of him. And one of those criminals, we just saw in that verse, begins to mock Jesus himself, saying, okay, if you really are the Son of God, like everybody's saying you, and he's in, remember, he's in the middle of some of the most intense pain in the history of the world here, being tortured to death, and he's mocking Jesus with his dying breath. Save yourself and us. Get us off of this cross here. Well, look at what the other guy said, verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so we see in this other criminal's uh, statement, he does the first thing that is necessary in in the process of salvation. He acknowledges his own shortcomings. He confesses his sinfulness. And he says to that other guy hanging on the other cross, we're getting punished because we did what they are accusing us of doing. We, he says, I know you. Maybe they were in it together, whatever it was. He says, we did it, and we deserve what we're getting. Jesus is there, and he didn't do anything to deserve this. He's dying as an innocent man. And this man then turns to Jesus, verse 42. And I find, I mean, the whole scene, people are mocking, people are screaming, people are spitting, saying, extremely vulgar things, the, the intense pain, the blood dripping, the, I mean, Jesus being, 
you know, have, having his back torn up from the whippings and the crown of thorns. I mean, it's a gruesome scene. And it's almost like these three guys there hanging on the cross are just having a moment, just them, in the midst of the pain and the torture and the, and the mocking and the, the verbal abuse. They're having a little small group moment here. And that thief, that criminal, turns to Jesus. Verse 42, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he asks Jesus to remember him. Jesus, just, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me. Remember my belief. Remember my defense of you. Remember my, my, my love of you. And Jesus turns to that man, verse 43, and he says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And, and this statement is phenomenal for a bunch of reasons. That, that opening, those opening words, Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's his teaching formula. So it's almost like Jesus, the teacher, uses the formula he had used many times teaching and just goes back to teaching again as he's hanging on the cross, as he's suffering, as he's dying. And, and he has a moment, just he and this man who's being crucified next to him. Truly I say to you, today, this day, before the sun goes down, you will be with me in paradise, in heaven, you will be with me there and we examine this I mean th there's so much here but look at it from the perspective of that criminal that as the scripture calls him that thief another one of the gospels calls him uh, he woke up that morning knowing he had been sentenced already in the past to be executed at some point when Rome saw fit to do it and so he knew what was coming but he had no idea that he was going to be executed right next to Jesus. He had no idea when he woke up that morning he would be stepping into heaven before the sun went down. He knew at some point he was going to die. But God sent Jesus to be crucified right next to this guy so that this moment could happen. In the midst of Jesus dying for the salvation of the whole world, Jesus saw fit to extend love to the guy dying next to him. So as Jesus was dying for your sins, Jesus was extending the gospel to this one guy. Because that's the story of the gospel. It's for all of us individually. And so Jesus was sent for all of us, but also was sent that day for that man. And we're going to look at God's purpose in doing this, sending someone for someone specific, even in the midst of a terrible circumstance. Jesus being crucified in great pain, being sent and sharing this moment with this guy. We saw a minute ago Cecil Pugh being sent in the midst of that moment on that ship to share the gospel with those men, and he died. Let's look at Acts chapter 16. If you use a Bible on your pew rack there, it's on page 925, uh, but the verses will also be on the screen. Uh, Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at the life of Paul in a, in a very similar scenario to what's going on here. Paul went around and told a bunch of people about Jesus. He would tell so many people about Jesus in each individual place he went that they would start a church there. That was his goal, to get as many people to know Jesus as possible. He would go to a town, tell a bunch of them, they would form a church, and then he would move on to the next city, tell a bunch of people, they would uh, uh, form a church, and he would move on to the next town. And he went through this process in all these places he would go. 
And in the midst of that, he brought along guys with him. Well, he gets to this particular area. This is the city of Philippi, and he's got three buddies with him. He's got Silas, who's another Jew. He's got Timothy, who is half Jew, half Greek. Uh, and then he's got Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, who we believe was a Greek. And they roll into Philippi, and they go to this place where they hear people are praying, and they go there and they share the gospel, and all the people there get saved. And so they keep going back to this place as the now saved people keep bringing new people for Paul to tell the gospel to. And more people are getting saved day after day after day after day. But in the midst of that happening, something else happens. Verse 16 of Luke, or Acts chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, this is very interesting. Spirit of divination. This literally means, in the original language, the python spirit. Uh, and that comes from Greek mythology, that there was this uh, uh, future-telling oracle at the city of Delphi uh, that was there, and she was guarded uh, by this python, this snake. And the python was killed by the Greek god Apollo. And, um, and so in saying this is the culture that they are walking into, people in the town would revere this girl because they thought she had this, this uh, uh, spirit from their Greek mythology that was in her, and she was proclaiming the future uh, because of the spirit, which we're going to find out is a demon that is in her. And uh, her owner, she's a slave, her owners would you know, extend her services for money to anybody who wanted to know their future, to tell their fortune. And they made a lot of money from this girl. And so Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're walking into this great cultural evil, bringing the gospel every single day. And so this girl, verse 17, she's following them. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So day after day, they're walking down here telling people about Jesus. This girl is following them, yelling this as they go. Uh, she kept doing this for many days. Uh, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, for some of you, that's the most you can relate to Paul right there. Somebody following you saying the same thing over and over every day. Having become greatly annoyed. Some of you are picturing your kids' faces right now. Uh, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, it's not permission this afternoon to say that to your kids. <laughs> um, you may feel like it. They're, maybe they're not possessed by a demon. They're possessed by the fact that they are four years old. That's just the way they are. But Paul turns around and tells this demon to come out of her. And the demon pops out just leaves her alone, and she's left there with her mind fully engaged. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, look at that verse. Is anything missing there? These owners, well, first, let me give you some context. In each of these major Roman towns, they had uh, uh, judges or magistrates who would sit in the marketplace, and uh, anybody who was a Roman citizen could bring somebody before them to be judged, to make an accusation there. 
and make a legal case right then and there. You didn't have to go through a whole big process or submit. You could just bring them before the judges in the middle of the marketplace. Everybody can watch it, what's taking place. And so these two guys uh, who, own, who own that girl as a slave grab Paul and Silas and bring them before the rulers. But what's interesting is they only grab Paul and Silas. They don't grab Luke and Timothy. And we're going to see why in just a second. So they bring them before the magistrates. And look at what they say. Uh, and they said, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And what they're doing, it, it, you know, it may not hit today like it did 2,000 years ago. They are introducing the concept of, uh, uh, well, it's not a concept, they are bringing accusations based on race into the mix. That's why don't, they don't grab Luke and Timothy. Luke and Timothy are Greek. Paul and Silas are Jews. So they only grab the Jews, the two Jews. I mean, Luke and Timothy were right in the throes of it with Paul and Silas telling people about Jesus every single day, but they'd leave them alone. And they only bring the two guys who are Jews before the magistrates. And they set them there and say, these guys are Jews, and they're doing stuff that is not okay for people of our race to do. And they're trying to lead people of our race down a path that's not right. And so they're saying this to the magistrates, but in saying this, they're stirring up the crowd who is there as well. Now, again, racism only existed back then, right? It doesn't exist anymore. Right? Because people grow and change and, and you know, get better. I can with Jesus, but as we say many times, if sin is not dealt, dealt with, it's passed on to the next generation. And we can see it's been passed on for at least 2,000 years. I guarantee you longer than that. And they're introducing that into their accusations. They don't say specifically what happened here. They use generalities in their speech, but what they're really trying to do is stir up the crowd because they know every one of these magistrates, these rulers, these judges, they're politicians. And, they wanna, and, and they're politicians not in the sense of wanting to lead. The politicians who were Roman, they, they were ruled in reality by the opinion of the people keeping the mob happy. And so whatever the mob wanted, the rulers would give them because they wanted to keep their jobs. That was something, again, politicians only did back then. They don't do that anymore. And so they're trying to stir the crowd up because if the crowd is, is, you know, has a certain opinion, then the magistrates will do whatever the crowd wants. And so look at verse 22. The crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now, this is another common scene in Roman culture. Is these magistrates would sit, and we've actually discovered, I mean, archaeologists have dug this exact marketplace up in Philippi. You can go online, you can see it right now on Google Images. It's right there, you can see it. They dug it up. These magistrates are sitting there, but extended out around them, are these guards with what look like just ceremonial poles, really long, really firm poles. But they're not ceremonial at all. They were brutal. And so when the magistrate gives a signal, those guards go to action, and they start just beating Paul and Silas with these poles. And, I mean, indiscriminately. 
They don't care if they hit them in the head, they hit them in the back, they hit them in the leg. They don't care if they break anything. They don't care how much blood is spilt. It doesn't matter. Magistrate said beat them, and so they would just beat them until the magistrate says stop. Don't beat, not, not like beat them, but keep them alive. They didn't care. Just beat them. Pop an eye out, doesn't matter. Beat them more. And so they strip them down, they rip their clothes up, and they're just beating them. Again, this is in the public square. This is in the marketplace. This is center aisle at Walmart. They're just beating them right there. Paul actually talks about this later on in the book of Acts in giving one of his testimonies about being beaten like this. Uh, Verse 23, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, let me explain something about this jail. Because they've actually, again, archaeologists have dug this jail up. This prison up. And the cells were tiny. They, they were just big enough for, for Paul and Silas to sit down with their backs against the back wall. And their feet would touch the, the, the uh, bars at the front of the gate. They're put in stocks. So their feet are in stocks. And their feet are touching the bars, their back is touching the back wall, and it's just wide enough for them sitting next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, to be able to pick their elbows up and touch the the side walls. These things are tiny. And they're in the inner prison. And so, I mean, they don't see any light. It's pitch black in there. They're way down deep. There's no way, I mean, they're, again, remember, they've been stripped down, they've been beaten, they're bleeding, they've probably got broken bones, ribs, whatever, you know. Uh, deflated lung, who knows how bad this is. But they're sitting there, again, probably in the filth of the last guy who was sitting there. What would your mood be in that moment? Overjoyed? Excited? Screaming, call my lawyer. How would you be feeling right there? Woe is me. Terrible, awful. I cannot believe we are here. Why didn't they get Timothy? I mean, for Pete's sake. But look at Paul and Silas, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying and singing songs. If that were you, what's the first song that would pop into your head? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrows. <laughs> I guarantee you that's not what they were singing. <laughs> They're singing praises to God with their broken bones, with blood coming out of their mouths, with missing teeth. They're singing praises, and they're praying. And look at that, next, that last phrase. The prisoners, the other guys in the prison, were listening to them. That word literally means to listen attentively and to apply it to yourself. So the image is, not only are they singing and praying, the image is the gospel going out to the other guys in the prison as they're there in the filth, in, in, bleeding all over the place. It, it, every breath they take to sing the song, it's excruciating pain. Everyone's listening. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors flew open, 
and everyone's bonds unfastened. Think about you. What would you do in that scenario? Let's get out of here fast. Silas, are you okay to run? Because we're going to sneak out and just, we're going to get out of this mess. We're going to find some clothes, and we are going to leave Philippi. This is just a bad situation. God obviously does not want us here, and this is God's deliverance, opening everything so we can leave. But that's not what happens. Verse 27. When the jailer woke, so context again, the jailer was asleep. He wasn't watching the prisoners. He was asleep. And saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had, had escaped. See, it was his responsibility to take care of that prison. And so, if anybody escaped under his watch, Rome had no mercy. Death was a foregone conclusion. And so he assumed, seeing the scenario waking up, seeing all the doors open, the earthquake probably woke him up, seeing all the cell doors open, that they, everybody left. And he was going to be killed the next day. And so he immediately pulls out his sword to kill himself. But Paul, being in the inner prison where it's darker, can kind of see out there. He yells out, verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, this is a profound statement. Somehow, Paul knows, not only did he and Silas not leave, none of the other prisoners escaped. None of them. Even the guys with the most questionable morals, none of them left, tried to sneak out, tried to run out as fast as they could. They all stayed where they were. And Paul knew it. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Here it is. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So not only were the other prisoners listening, this jailer was listening to what they were saying. And he falls in front of them seeing how they have been impacted by the message that they're preaching, but also how they, being in prison, impacted all the other guys in prison. And there's something in them. And so he brings them out and says, okay, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds. So we know that they, they were still suffering. But he cleaned off all the blood. He washed them, bandaged them up. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house. This was a big no-no. He brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. You see, what we see there... <laughs> The presence of Paul and Silas in the prison had a profound impact on everyone that was there. No one tried to escape this brutal potential punishment. Natural instinct obviously would have been to try to get out of there as quick as possible, but nobody left. Because we can see with Paul and Silas how you present and represent Jesus in your situation will profoundly affect everyone around you 
near you, observing you, watching you. And you could be in the most dire situation, whatever it may be. Cecil Pugh going down into the boat. Jesus dying on a cross. Paul and Silas suffering in the prison and yet singing praises. How you deal, Christian, with what you're going through will profoundly impact everyone around you. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if you see no way out, even if all you want to do is crawl up in a corner and weep. I'm not saying weeping's bad. You can, absolutely, you can. Be transparent, be honest, but be faithful. I remember watching movie The Alamo uh, growing up in the house of a Texas history teacher. We... We watched a lot of Texas history. Uh, but there was this one scene I can distinctly remember in the movie. Uh, I don't know if you know the story of the Alamo, 300 guys in the Alamo surrounded by 10,000 of Santa Ana's troops. And um, Davy Crockett's in there, having come down, been a former senator in Tennessee, came down to Texas to help out. And he's in there, and everybody knows who he is. I mean, you've all heard Davy Crockett. I mean, he's just a guy. Um, that people made all kinds of legends about. And he's sitting there and he's talking to uh, Jim Bowie, the Bowie knife guy. And they're having a conversation there in the Alamo. And uh, Davy Crockett makes a confession. This is in the movie. Whether this conversation happened or not, I don't know. But it's a great scene where he says, you know, if it was just little old David from Tennessee, I'd probably just hop over the wall and try to sneak out, take my chances. But that Davy Crockett fella, all them guys are watching him. All them, they're watching what he's going to do. They're watching whether he's going to stay. They're watching what he's saying. They're watching how he's fighting. He's going to stay till the end. People are watching you. Even if you don't think they are, they are. Even if you think they can't see what you post, they can see it. Even if you think they don't know the tone with which you speak or the tone with which you post or the tone with which you text. They can interpret something. And how we present and represent Jesus profoundly impacts everyone around us. Everyone. Everyone around us. Here Paul and Silas in prison suffering like they were suffering. Got those other guys in the prison to listen. The jailer, listen. They sang and prayed, and the natural instincts of those other prisoners were completely rewired so they did not try to escape because of the gospel they had received. But look at it from this perspective. God cared so much about those people in prison that he sent Paul and Silas in there to bring the gospel. Even if they had to be bloodied up first, even if they had to have their rights violated first, even if it wasn't fair for Paul and Silas, he sent Paul and Silas into that prison so those guys could get the gospel, so that jailer could get the gospel, and that's the way Paul and Silas saw it. It was an opportunity for the gospel. They didn't wallow in, in how unfair it was, because it was unfair. It was not right. It was actually against the law the way they were treated. Because Paul was a Roman citizen, they should not have been beaten that way. And Paul's going to speak to that later on. You see, the thing is, for them, the gospel was more important than how they were struggling, than how they were suffering, than the pain. 
for those guys who were there. That doesn't mean the pain went away immediately. Absolutely not. They probably spent weeks recovering from that moment. Months. Maybe they were never the same. Maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh came from this moment. It was a pain for the rest of his life. We don't know. But they were there and shared the gospel with these guys because God loved them so much. But see, that's the thing about you too. That's the thing about you. God cares about you so much that he sends you help. God loves you too much to leave you alone. He loves you too much to leave you alone, to leave you where you are without any help. We see it all throughout Scripture. Jonah in the, in the whale, or in the fish. God was there. David walking out onto the battlefield to face a hardened warrior of Goliath found some smooth stones that he took with him. God loves you too much to leave you alone. He's going to send you help. Direct help from his, his presence. He's going to send you help in the form of other people coming alongside you, holding up your arms. I remember a moment, this came to me this, this morning, uh, many years ago, uh, and I'll tell you why it came to me in a moment. Um, uh, many years ago, I was going through a difficult mo uh, time and this guy came alongside me, took me to eat, and poured into my life, and uh, shared many great things and encouragement and, and building me up, and uh, mentored me in the process. I can count some personal mentors on one hand, and this guy was one of them. And uh, what's fascinating is he also mentored my father 20, 30 years prior. Well, this man went to heaven a couple weeks ago. His funeral's this afternoon. We're going to stream it. But... Uh, he was a profound person, but the Lord sent him at just the right moment. Have you ever gotten a text from somebody at just the right moment that said just the right phrase, and the Lord lifted you up from that? That's God. That's God inspiring that person. You say, well, you don't know this person. This person's got no ounce of holiness in them. God can use anybody and everybody to do anything. And you receiving that and it bringing you encouragement, that's the hand of the Lord showing itself because God loves you too much to leave you alone. But you got to look at it too from a different perspective, from the perspective of Paul and Silas, the perspective of Jesus on the cross, the perspective of Cecil Pugh going down into that ship. God also loves the people around you too much to leave them alone. So he sent you. You are a gift from God to someone today. You are a gift from God to someone today. It could be somebody in your house. It could just be somebody walking down the hallway that you've never seen before today here at church. You are a gift from God to somebody today, whether you realize it or not. And we have to come to the conclusion, what kind of gift am I going to be? What kind of gift am I going to be? Am I going to be in a... a, a an expensive investment? Or am I going to be a dollar store trinket that is a last second thought? What kind of gift am I going to be? Am I going to keep my eyes up and, and be, be observant of the people around me? Or am I going to keep my eyes on my, me and my situation and my circumstance and my deal? Paul and Silas 
in their struggle. I've never struggled like Paul and Silas. I've never been beaten within an inch of my life, sitting naked in somebody else's filth, locked up in a Roman prison with no room. Talk about claustrophobia. But there they were in that mess, concerned about the spiritual condition of everyone around them, singing praises, praying for those people. Because they understood this, that they were a gift from God for those people. When that jailer brought them out and asked them, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say, just hang on a sec. I need to go, you know, take a bath real quick. I need a Band-Aid. Just need to wipe the blood away from my mouth so I can talk to you. No, they immediately shared the gospel with the guy. You are a gift from God to someone today. How are you going to present that? How are you going to react to that? Even No matter what you're going through and how difficult it is, and yes, you need God in the midst of that to help pull you out and pull you through and get you through all of that. You absolutely do. But even though you're going through that, you can still be a gift from God to somebody else. However difficult it is, how you present and represent Jesus can profoundly impact Anybody and everybody, what kind of gift will you be today? Will you accept that responsibility, that gifting that God's placed on you today? And keep your eyes up, heads up, looking for whatever God would place before you. That's a quote from another movie. (laughs) This one guy came along and helped this guy who was in dire straits been abandoned by all his friends and his family. They got captured and sold into slavery, walked through it together. And the first guy helped the hurting guy all throughout that, helped him get through the slavery, out of slavery, get his freedom, get out into the world and, and regain what he had lost. And the hurting guy yelled at the, at the first guy, why did you do this? Why did you help me? And the first guy said back to him, well, because the Lord put you in my way. <laughs> I had to help you. Who has the Lord put in your way today? Who has he put in your way that you tried to step around because they were in your way, but he put there for you to be a gift to them today? Maybe, maybe today God's sending someone for you, loving you too much to leave you alone, is you being here right now in this room, hearing this word, knowing that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, and you can come to know him today and embrace eternity today. So that's the question I have for you. Will you follow Jesus, both into salvation, believing that he is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you follow him in that? And then will you follow his example as he uh, ministered to the other man on the cross? Will you be a gift to someone today? Will you accept his gift today of salvation? What will you do with the gifting today?